Hello, dear listener. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you know that this is the season finale of Subjective Cinema Season 1. Thanks so much for tuning in for these five episodes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us some positive feedback wherever you're listening and follow Video Eclectic on social media to keep up to date with future plans. If you want to see more Subjective Cinema content, including things left on the cutting room floor, you can also support us at Video Eclectic on Patreon. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Subjective Cinema, where everything's made up and the critics don't matter. I am your host and ill-fated schoolteacher, Anna Dodds, and today I'm here with my dad, John Dodds, to talk about Alfred, Hitch- Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. There we go. Hello, Father. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Well, yes, I am a uh, closet thespian who uh, is a 65-year-old lover of Alfred Hitchcock, uh, all things Alfred Hitchcock having seen his work for probably at least 55 of those 65 years. I'm the son of a mother who strangely resembles Jessica Tandy, who plays a key role in this film. Uh, Tippi Hedren uh, was an early crush of mine. And I also studied Alfred Hitchcock in college and uh, was also the projectionist for that same course at least a couple more times as it was delivered. So Got a lot of uh, Hitchcock through osmosis and through study. So, I would say you are also a filmmaker, an occasional filmmaker. And uh, <laughs> Terror from Planet Xenon keeps making the rounds forty years after it was made. And, it does. Uh, I'm still proud of it. Uh, yeah, it that's fair. Definitely informed by uh, my study of Alfred Hitchcock when I when I did it. So. That's true. It is, it is in its own weird, quirky way, a suspense film. <laughs> <laughs> well, through the parallel editing and uh, the dynamics of, yeah, there's definitely suspense. Yeah, yeah. I think when we added audio to it, the first half is Psycho, isn't it? Yeah, which yeah, is the Psycho fits suite. perfectly that, yeah. that strumming string dynamic under undertone. Okay. Have you seen any good movies lately? Which I would say I would have to know about, but I don't really watch TV or movies with y'all anymore. So like, what well, is the last thing we saw? I guess the key word is good movies. As, as fun as it was to watch Gal Gadot and uh, Chris Pine do anything. Yeah. I, it's hard for me to put uh, Wonder Woman 84 in the good movie category. Well, it's closer. I mean, the other quote-unquote movies we watch regularly is, you know, Riff Tracks and MST3K and, you know, Red Letter Media, Best of the Worst, all of that. So comparatively. Well, I mean, the the movie that first came to mind when I read that note was, and you probably already know this, The Invisible Man. Oh, yeah. You love The Invisible Man. Which I can't get anyone in my family to watch with me, but it's... No, this is true. Talk about Hitchcockian suspense and somebody who probably also grew up in the pocket of, uh, of the master. Though, though that's, a, that's a woman director, so thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's just got great diversions and, well, and the beauty of that movie is because it's about an invisible man who is threatening and a killer and murderer, anytime the screen, the camera is focused on anything, mm-hmm. there's a threat. <laughs> I mean, so there are times where these long, silent pauses where the camera is just tracking slowly across an empty room. And 
They haven't even done any special effects to like make the cushion look like somebody's sitting there, but they're invisible. And yeah. you're just and you're just tense going, is he is he there? Is, <laughs> is, is, is so there's there's some genius to the subject matter all by itself. Yeah, that's fair. So that that's top of my if you haven't seen it list for uh, anybody out there and you're a Hitchcock fan in any way, <laughs> now that the master is long gone, it'll it'll uh, it'll feed your soul. And then let's see, uh, especially considering that you are both retired and in quarantine, what are you doing to keep busy? <laughs> what aren't well, you doing to keep busy? I recently assembled a loom. That is true. Your wife is very excited. Loom project was, uh, was very satisfying. Two days of uh, manual labor that then has an end product. It, yeah. it beats it beats cleaning the house and doing laundry. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> several several hundred parts. I recently married off a daughter. That was a proud moment. That is true. That'll be a funky thing about this release. Uh, in Cameron's episode of this, they say they are my partner, which is still true. But also, we did get married since that got recorded. So. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh wow! Well, that's, told, that's true. Ladies and gentlemen, you're on the other side of it now. Uh, <laughs> I have been uh, busy during quarantine and the quarantine months with a with in-person quartet singing and virtual chorale singing. Yeah, that's uh, that's another filmmaking credit you have to your name. You have put together early in quarantine. Right. You put together a quartet video. I have hopes of doing a uh, Babylon trio with myself uh, <laughs> soon. So that's uh, that's in the works. I've. <laughs> I've made one unsuccessful version of it. The sound is great, but the uh, visual is just a little too menacing for what I'm trying to do. <laughs> when the weather permitting, riding bikes and trying to, now that it's after January, trying to eat right and you know all those fun things. Yeah. Uh, I'm a church elder, so there's never a shortage of things to do. Uh, picking up and putting down over there re related to worship. And uh, I've been Zooming a lot. That's true. This is familiar territory for you. Which is which is fun, particularly when it's a Zoom happy hour. That's uh, that's my preferred way, though. Today it's water only. <laughs> yeah, same. Cheers. Turvis tumblers from the same cabinet. Oh, there you go. And parents who are in their 90s who uh, uh, we enjoy a, a variety of, of uh, activity opportunities with the two of them as uh, lockdowns and uh quarantines allow yeah so i don't yeah. know that's a pretty that's a pretty good list I, I'm yeah sure that's there a few more things. that is a pretty comprehensive look at your last year essentially we are recording in from a zoom from two different rooms of the same house you're probably less than 100 feet from me physically and i have recorded an episode in that room so you know, eagle-eyed viewer of the video versions will recognize both of these rooms from my side of the recording. Do you want to start talking about the movie? I think it's time. These poor people have waited long enough. I don't know. We'll probably edit some of it down. But step one is to summarize the movie. So as usual, taken from Wikipedia, The Birds is a 1963 American natural horror thriller film produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock loosely based on the 1952 story of the same title by Daphne du, let's say, Maurier. Beautiful. 
It focuses on a series of sudden and unexpected violent bird attacks on the people of Bodega Bay, California, over the course of a few days. The film stars Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren in her screen debut, Jessica Tandy, Suzanne Plachette, and Veronica Cartwright. The screenplay is by Evan Hunter, who was told by Hitchcock to develop new characters and a more elaborate plot while keeping Dumarier's title and concept of unexplained bird attacks. In 2016, The Birds was deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, unquote, by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in its National Film Registry. So yeah, that's that's the basic summary. How did you find the birds, or like when did you first see the birds? Well, that was that's a puzzling question because I was eight <laughs> when the movie came out, so I did not see it in the theaters. And in fact, it was it was it came out right on the heels of Psycho, and so a few years later, Psycho was released via one of the networks. Of course, you know. Mm. TV and movies were radically different environments in terms of contracts and distribution. And so yeah. Psycho was a big deal on the whoever, ABC, NBC, CBS, there were only the three networks. And yeah. certainly it wasn't released on PBS, but, but my sister was old enough to stay up and watch Psycho with mom and dad, but I was not. So I'm guessing I must've been in the 10 to 12 range when that happened. So probably 66 uh, was when Psycho probably wound up, wound up being released to the networks. Yeah, broadcast so, on TV. Yeah. So somewhere after that, but probably before I discovered Star Trek, Birds would have been, the Birds would have been released to networks as well. And mom and dad were not watching over my TV watching by that point. I was a little bit older. And the one thing I knew for sure was Alfred Hitchcock and his movies were a forbidden mm -hmm. product. So what does little Johnny Dodds want to do? Get his hands on anything Alfred Hitchcock related that he possibly could. <laughs> so I don't remember the exact first time that I saw it, but I know I was immediately enthralled with it. And I know that all the more from watching it again this week in anticipation of this call mm -hmm. and how, how much of an emotional connection I had with, with every frame of this film. So probably, probably 67, 68, somewhere around there, a popcorn movie night at the Dodds house uh, with the birds. And then I'm sure I've seen it over those 55 years since. <laughs> Six oh, I'm or sure. seven or eight times. So any any good excuse to uh, to stumble upon it? I haven't gone out and rented it a lot, but that's my best guess. Yeah, that's fair. Though those those would have been Star Trek years. Star Trek is sixty six to sixty nine. So oh, okay. I thought it was a little later than that. Okay, well they no, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know why I linked those two, but no, that's fair. The you know they they seem to be at least reasonably formative television experiences. Yeah. And, you know, if it's the same window, it makes sense that they'd be connected a bit. But, uh, but Tippy made a big impression on me. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, well, well, we'll get into some of that later. <laughs> Maybe acting. We'll see. Yeah, yeah I, I don't have much to say about watching it because this is the first time I have ever seen it, which you, of course, know very well. Um, this is also only the second Hitchcock movie I have seen in spite of your best efforts. 
Um, I also watched Vertigo for a film class a couple years ago. But other than that, that's this is about it. I've I'll probably a, eventually get to Psycho. I've got a list. Mm-hmm. No, I it's many Hitchcock movies are on the hypothetical dreamed up list of things I should watch <laughs> based I, I, on various people's recommendations and insistences. Yeah, I'd do Frenzy before I did Psycho if I were you, but fair. But Psycho is iconic. There's no yeah. about it. Yeah, it just sort of seems like the one that I have, if I have Vertigo and Psycho and the birds, I'll be able to shut people up a little bit more if they're like, <laughs> what do you mean you haven't seen, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yes, Psycho or whatever your best recommendation would be, sounds like Frenzy are probably the next most likely options. Well, Frenzy is after Hitchcock's Hollywood peak. Uh, oh yeah, and, the and, one you like because it's post Hollywood. It's a bunch of unknowns doing their best. Yeah, and it's uh, you know it's a uh, it's an all English production in, filmed in Britain. No star power. It's all the strength of the story. It ta- it's like going back to uh, Hitchcock's early years, but when he was you know virtually unknown. Yeah. And the kind of film work he was doing then only he's still got all the skills and power and all the experience that from being a Hollywood giant. Yeah, yeah. So it's fodder for another day. (laughs) Yeah, fair, fair. Do we want to set up a ranking system? Because here's the thing about the ranking system. We do not really want to use math on subjective pieces of art, but being able to compare things and rank them is also fun sometimes. So using somewhat arbitrary ranking systems is a thing I have been doing, but it has been passed over before. So thoughts? Uh, I think uh, Killer Crow. uh, (laughs) And that gives us both the crows from from the birds as well as MST3K for us to (laughs) reflect on. Yeah, how how many crows does it get out of as many as you want? Yeah, what I have uh, that I am most fond of is superimposed birds but not out of any particular number there you go well i i like the word crow yeah since it does bring up mst3k and i do think part of the genius of this film and the fun of it is the black humor that is peppered throughout yeah that's not not really with a big wink wink nudge nudge hey did you get it it's that's that's a very hitchcockian quality where he slips stuff in and uh, unless you're looking for it (laughs) it goes right by without a nudge so yeah for uh, sure so how about a little love for crow Uh uh-huh yeah a little sugar for crow we will do ranking of crows (laughs) sounds good all right you want to talk about the story that's that's where we generally start sure all righty you want me just to go off on it for a little yeah pretty much (laughs) <laughs> just just tell us well i i love the story uh and i think that it's it's a three-act story and it's uh it's one that evolves we start out in a world where you're you're in light bright and fun san francisco and tippy hendren is hopping in out of a off of a no she's hopping out of her aston martin and into a bird shop and somebody whistles and she stops and turns. I did not know this until I was reading up on uh, this this past week, but that 
actual shot for shot, her hopping out of the car, the whistle and the turn and the pause that she gave it with the big smile. Mm-hmm. That's that shot for shot taken from a commercial for some clothing line that she had done that had run nationally like the year before oh my god and and it was a little another little hitchcock gift but i had read that and i'd forgotten about that that had even happened but then when i watched the film again and i even saw the pose that she took it's like Mm -hmm. yeah that is madison avenue up one side oh yeah it makes so much sense though also like side note it's so ridiculous to me that she's like why thank you about a cat (laughs) call it's like christ (laughs) oh there there are pardon my french buttloads of things that make this so 1963 yeah but so so she she heads into the the bird shop and i think really for the first act there's not a lot of menace about birds no it's a rom-com for it's the first like half of it yeah yeah it's a rom-com it's a rom-com up to and including the delivery of the lovebirds and the little coquettish ducking in the boat to not be seen and him looking through the binoculars and there, there's there's no foreboding and uh you know that first little taste is when she gets hit with the bird on the way back. But then it really comes down hard when we meet mom. Yeah, and, and that's I think, true. I think the official beginning of the second act is, is when we meet mom and we get further immersed in family drama. You know, that's another thing about Hitchcock. Hitchcock is sort of, in my mind, from the golden era of whether it's explicitly stated as in some of his movies like Spellbound or if it's more uh, almost subliminal reference, but it's the era of uh, psychology and filmmaking. The, The characters are showing their hand about who they are psychologically, how they were raised, where they're, where they were bruised and wounded and how that, presents itself in their persona and their actions and their choices. You know, a lot of those, like another one I've encouraged you on in Dead of Night, go so far as to actually have a psychologist as one of the characters who reflects on and and comments on. Uh, Hitchcock does a little of that in some other films too, but in, in, in all of his, you feel that undercurrent. And that's when mom shows up, it's like, okay, time to get psychological. We're out of, we're out of rom-com and we're into what the hell did happen to Mitch as a kid and why yeah. did, and who what is, is that this family dynamic <laughs> who is that glowering dead man looking off the wall behind the piano and and all that stuff uh so so that kind of kind of darkness starts to infuse and, and I say say darkness mainly because in the first act there were secrets you know Mitch talking to oh what's what's tippy's name what's her character's name i don't remember her first name it's somebody daniels because everybody calls her miss daniels for like 40 percent of the movie and so that's just what stuck in my brain it'll come to me but you know mitch in their first meeting he knows who she is Mm -hmm. she doesn't know he knows you know secrets and, and and the unspoken are a constant current throughout this thing but they're they're not they're light and fun in the first act and they're menacing in the second act, the things you don't know about the dead dad and the things you yeah. don't know 
but at any rate, it's as stories. So there, the second act is menacing and foreboding. It's all about family, and it and is all about family under threat or, or with a growing threat. And I don't know. Well, for me, at least, it then flips to horror. I don't know if it's ahead of the third act or whether it's the trigger of the third act. But but the visit to the farmer's house. I think the, that's the midpoint from both just where I'm pretty sure it falls in time in the movie, but also right. from, you know, cough, cough, having studied screenplay structure, like technically sure. I think that's midpoint. I would suspect that the third act is actually closer to when they're like locking down the house. Um, maybe the third act, second act has a lot in it. <laughs> like second act is two court is half the movie. Maybe the second act is, uh, the end of the uh, diner sequence. Mm, yeah, maybe that and that er- could and be. Everybody, everybody heads home. Yeah, the diner sequence is sort of the yeah transition point between Act Two and Act Three. That could totally be it, because you know yeah. this is also one of those movies that you could arguably not that the two plots are not intimately connected in their own right, but there are two sort of arcs going on of the basic suspense arc of the birds stuff, but also the character arcs. And so those could be arguably broken up differently. You know, like it's just sort of implications and foreboding until we go to the farmhouse. And then it's like, yeah, no, seriously, this is a horror movie about birds. In case you missed (laughs) that, that's what's going on now. You know, that's what I think is the hard cut between rom-com and suspense film. Like, I see what you're saying of, like, it gives way as soon as we meet mom, but also, like, mom would be a normal tension for a rom-com, you know? Like, well, that's true. Still that's true. That particular Hitchcock level of foreboding, like, she isn't just, you know, a bitch to be, you know, sort of won over, but also she is at the same time. So that's, you know, right. where it does start to give way, but is still mostly textually rom-com and then you know the the birthday party in the farmhouse and it's like yeah we're this is this is what we're doing now yeah yeah in terms of uh how they tell story some points i I remember writing down and this shows up i guess i guess throughout but certainly in the second act that thing i was referencing about the the things that are unsaid Mm -hmm. there's so many knowing glances when we meet ms hawthorne uh, Annie, the, the teacher. Annie. For some teacher. reason, her first name stuck. <laughs> there we go. I guess because everybody calls her Annie. Everybody calls her Annie. But, you know, the well, I guess uh, Tippy has met mom and uh, and explained the, the lovebirds. And mm-hmm. I can't remember whether Annie hears about the lovebirds first or mom hears about the lovebirds first. But when each of them hear about the lovebirds, they give knowing glances and go, oh. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's clearly means because she stops by Annie's house yeah. to get Kathy's name. That's right, and, she and looks so that's down where we car. have the first. Mm, yeah, he he brings home a lot of women. <laughs> right. But yeah, you know, of like yeah, lots of lots of women come through here looking for Mitch. You know, that implication comes from her first, and so I think that also helps you recognize it in Mom's more subtle tells because Mom is closer to just like, huh you know like that's it you get with her whereas you get a little bit more with Annie so the the thing I'm heading towards is on a filmmaker level 
I think at around the same times in the early going of certainly of that second act, and certainly as soon as the bird strike has hit Tippy in the head, he's doing the same thing with the audience where he's giving these little knowing, oh, yeah, and, and this also is going on. Oh, and we're, as an audience, we're like, oh, <laughs> I see, you know, but, but it's not sexual in nature, like, like all the lovebird stuff. <laughs> uh, I remember as a kid seeing it, I thought, what is it with those lovebirds? And, they do uh, feel a little bit like a Chekhov's gun that doesn't go off, like I, which makes me then look at them as, oh, they're more of like, I don't know, a metaphor kind of thing, like not really a metaphor, but, you know, a symbol more than a plot element. But I, I think they are dangled out there as having more meaning or the potential for more meaning than they can accomplish. And yeah, uh, at any rate, I agree with you. The third act is is full on horror. It's it's a frenzy of activity, as much as the scene in the farmer's house, uh, where we see his pecked out eyes and his dead body in the corner. And that, when we get to editing, we'll be talking about that yeah. again. Yeah, and the amazing power of that scene because it it stuck with it 65 I could have yeah. without watching it this week I could have told you pretty much frame by frame how that scene played out but that is even for all of its impact and all of its horror it's a teaser yeah because because we don't we weren't there when it happened mm-hmm. we weren't there with it ha- when it happened and, and and we have a succession of events getting us closer and closer, even with the bird strike at the diner, knocking out the gas station attendant, we're not, and even with the, the attack on the school children, we're not in that full teacup breaking frenzy that went on that killed the, killed the farmer. The kids all still get, get out alive. And if it weren't for the knocked over gas nozzle, uh, everybody would have gotten out alive from that too, but but it's building and building and building it until Tippy is claustrophobically locked in that room. With well, we also the... kill Annie to set that up further too. Right, and another that's, teaser. That's the other. Yeah, teaser. that's the other death we have. You know, it's, it's another death, and it's told through uh, Ms. Cartwright's eyes, Kathy. It's it's told to us by her, but we we're left to again. Over and over, we're left to visualize the horror of what it is before we're presented with the payoff at the end with the full horror. I I think in terms of patience in showing the monster that we hear about in sci-fi, you know, how soon, how quick are we going to see Godzilla? Yeah. And uh, I uh, I think some more masterful filmmaking is on display with Hitchcock and his ability to wait and wait and tease and tease until I mean yeah he's the suspense right. guy you know like that's yeah. that's well, arguably I, his most lauded I love that about this film I guess is what I'm getting at yeah that's and I, fair and that is the denouement of the third act with then the the de-escalation and the exiting of the home and we'll talk more about that closing scene later yeah that that has a lot of uh either like mise-en-scene or cinematography thoughts for me, the way that ending goes. Oh, I'll wax 
prolific, if not eloquent, <laughs> on uh, how much of a message I think there is in those final, in that final 60 seconds as the Aston Martin wins its way down the coastline mm-hmm. through all those birds. Though also, <laughs> since, since you mentioned message, I'm going to take that and run with it as a segue of probably by the time we hit the third act, just, you know, thinking about, okay, now we're doing horror with birds and essentially watching how that was handled and wondering what sort of context or reading was most likely given to it at the time, or at least remotely closer to the time, because I became quickly aware that I was watching it with the context of all of the movies that whether I watched them or not, I was inundated with their concepts and trailers in 2000s, 2010s, lots of environmental movies and lots of zombie movies. And so the two things I was watching in this movie are like, you know, it is not identical to either of those, you know, genres as I know them. But at the same time, it's like, ah, Nature is back with a vengeance. Like, I grew up on Happy Feet. It's a very different tone, but it is the still, like, we fucked up as humans. Um, yes. And then also I was just aware of, like, this This is the same kind of suspense in a zombie movie. Like, it's a threat that is outside and you can yeah. keep it out there, but also it can fuck you up. And, like, right. that same sort of concern about going outside and about windows and, like, We have also talked a lot just casually about like the societal fears that various horror movies reflect and how like, you know, body snatchers in the Red Scare and like maybe zombies is sort of handling our xenophobia that we have right now. It'll be really interesting to see what sort of redirected horror tropes develop out of COVID, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. But what I... I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you. And and in fact, my viewing of it this time was probably informed even a little bit more by watching that tongue in cheek Hitchcock preview Mm -hmm. uh, with him walking around the study and talking about all the things that birds should be grateful for human to humans for while he's showing all these dead birds and Mm -hmm. pictures of birds punctured by arrows and getting ready to sit down to a chicken dinner or a quail dinner or duck dinner. I don't know what it was, but I, I think there's a definite message in his wry way, both in the preview and then not as obviously, uh, but all, you don't have to stop and think about it for long. But uh, how long can man expect to abuse nature before nature decides to abuse man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, think, I think that's, that's what uh, comes through in that final uh, impact for me when they're yeah. driving out just birds as far to, to the horizon, as far mm-hmm. as you can see. Now they, they give us some comfort uh, by adding that radio report that this is all somehow still localized to Bodega Bay. Yeah, I, I think Hitchcock had every right, if he'd wanted, to not make it a local calamity. And, you know, that left viewers of the time with the safety of thinking, well, they're driving to San Francisco to their safety, mm-hmm. instead of that news report being 
and now more bird strikes are showing up here and showing up in New York and showing up in Buenos Aires and mm-hmm. and the, you know the, the it could have been the beginning of a Holocaust theme that made people throw up on their way out of the theater, but he chose to uh, just leave us with that question, I think, <laughs> instead of an ongoing horror. Yeah, because it that, isn't that it hasn't spread at all, I think. It's like, mm, the nearby towns are reporting a couple of attacks, but like, it's fine, maybe? We don't really know what's going on. Which, right. you know, those news reports also gave me that zombie vibe. I, I just start to wonder of like, you know, the zombie genre is older than this movie, I assume, since like, like not by much, you know, it had a big old resurgence in the 2000s and this predates that by a lot but like it's close Dawn of the I, dead or whatever the i think, whatever I think the first one is i think night of the living dead was is the that's first it. one i knew about by, yeah um, i think that's the first most famous I, one i don't know that it's the first but i think romero is the director. yeah that's that's a romero one yeah i think that was a that was that was after 63 i think that's more like 66 i think it's still 60s but i think it's late 60s and it's informed by, well, it's got an African-American lead for one thing. Yeah. Uh, which probably would have been harder to pull off in 63. That's true. Uh, okay, hang on. I'm, I'm going to look it up. 1968. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this, this predates zombies as we know them, at least, which is really interesting. It's like, I wonder how many zombie filmmakers thought to take from this because it it handles things very similarly to me having grown up oversaturated by zombie media right right well it's it's got a different rhythm and pace to it too than you know zombies eating brains right out of the gate they they take some time to to let the the terror show up and Mm -hmm. interestingly enough it's the it's the terror inside the house that's that's greater than the terror outside the house at the end of the day in that film, which is sort of what goes on here too. I, I don't know, I think that's, I think I'll probably make other story comments, but it'll be in the context of other other parts of the framework you wanted to get through today. Okay, I have to get through lots of notes because when I'm watching a movie for the first time, I'm also just typing my thoughts down, including in all caps, no, Annie, you were the best bitch in this movie. I, I liked Annie a lot. <laughs> oh, Annie was great. And no, and and the way they shot us having getting having to find out that she was dead was you know that that was a slow reveal mm-hmm. too as they slowly walked up trying not to make a fuss and they had to their grief and horror had to be muted so the birds wouldn't hear. And, yeah, uh, and we were shown the picket fence and then we were shown. A, a shoe and then we were shown a leg and then we were then back to the picket fence then back to the birds then 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 to Annie and then and then you know we never really did see Annie's face mm-hmm. you know, his his hand no we we didn't really they didn't want to do that to us <laughs> they'd rather we visualize her yeah having her eyes pecked out yeah that's up. that's definitely something that I get the impression Hitchcock does in general that you know is as I have heard, I am not a horror aficionado, but I like watching YouTube videos by people who are um, <laughs> of, you know, the benefits of letting the human imagination be scared as opposed to showing people a thing and insisting it's scary, you know? Yes. And I think that's definitely in in your talk of all the like teasing of the terror, 
going forward in the movie, like I, I think that also might have a lot to do with it. You can imagine, and it'll be worse if you do than if we try and pull off those effects. Like, Well, the thing about Hitchcock and certainly the birds, you could probably watch this entire movie without any sound on at all and get 90% of it. Probably. Because, because he's such a visual storyteller. Which so. is also really interesting given how much exposition there is. That struck me with this movie is simultaneously how many scenes are just people talking, but also when people aren't talking, how much is conveyed in those scenes at the same time with like equal nuance and skill. We just have long ass conversations, you know, with, ooh, we said mom's name. What is mom's name? Lydia. Lydia. With, you know, Lydia in the bedroom, just talking for a solid handful of minutes, going home and sharing, or, you know, going back to Annie's place and sharing a drink with her and just having that conversation, you know. Those conversations go on for, you know, comparatively long. Maybe not at the time. I assume that's part of why there is so much exposition, but certainly compared to the way any movie is made now, it's like, wow, we're just chatting. All right. But then, you know, in other scenes, there is not a word spoken and there is at least as much information gotten across, you know? Yeah, yeah. I started going somewhere while you were in the middle of saying that. And <laughs> so I'm going to I'm gonna jump there anyway, but it'll sound, sound a little ragged, I guess. That's okay. But uh, women, this is a movie about women. It is. And I mean, you can tell it's written by a man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in your perspective on that, but it... For me, like I say, Betty Dodds and uh, Jessica Tandy are not dissimilar in hairstyles and uh, particularly mom at the time. She wore her hair, her hair up and back. In yeah. A, oh, in yeah. French, I've seen pictures of that hair. Yeah. Yeah. And I still don't know whether anything is being, uh, I'm interested in your take on and what you picked up on Tippy and Lydia uh, and the similarity. I mean, I think their hairstyles and their yes, visual, me too. I think, I think they look the two very, of them very are, similar. And, and I think there's a mirroring effect going on with the two of them that I don't fully grasp, but I do know that Lydia is helpless and Tippy is in her agency, whatever that is, or she's working on it, and she's out in the world, and you know she's taken off to Bodega Bay at a moment's notice as a very independent woman for 1963. Mm -hmm. And and Lydia is is terrified of every, of being abandoned. And by the end of the movie, Tippy is a basket case and is embraced in the arms of Lydia with a smile and a and a nurturing mothering there there in the backseat of the Aston Martin. Mm -hmm. And there's there's more going on there than I've ever been able to put words on. And it's probably because I was raised a mama's boy and I'm still a little too close to uh, mother energy to be able to see it clearly. So, so give me your thoughts. Oh, I don't really know. I, I mostly saw that ending wrap up of the, you know, pat, pat, there, there, maternal energy of like, ah, and we are paying off that Ms. Daniels uh, had a shitty mother. Like we are paying that off because we set oh. that up in the middle yeah, it's it's an interesting movie in regards to women. It's not the worst, but it also ain't great. I say that you can tell- Having people walk in a sand dune in heels is just criminal. 
Yeah, Jesus. I mean, I guess women did at the time. Like, I also think about that with media in like the 60s of like, well, women kind of wore heels all the time. Like it was kind of socially mandated of like heels are nothing um, is my impression. Right. Um, so, you know, that would make things a little different. You can learn to do those things in heels, but also Christ. It strikes me as very much being written by a man because like it all falls into tropes for however nuanced anybody is. They are still like, okay, you know, we, we have neat rich lady who can do whatever she wants and ooh, isn't she tantalizing and you know also just how the men interact with any of the women especially mitch and ms daniels whose first name i can't remember um you know of a major thought i had like part way through the movie was damn would it kill you to believe a woman like anything she says he is just like are you sure i am in a court case now i am i am strong manly man and the and right. haha i'm laughing so the audience should also think i am suave and neat and not harassing you about what happened in rome it's like dude just chill like leave her be like at all <laughs> women are not court cases you're not getting right. paid deep breaths yeah. bud you know and so things like that well, the ornithologist is a woman too. The authority, yes, yes, she's fun. The authority on birds, who then, who then, the, we last see her in the hall, shamed by her authority that she <laughs> insisted birds of a feather would never ever flock together, and then yeah, just, that of like you know shamed in her authority, and you mentioned everybody in the hall because that's another one that it struck they were me all women. like yeah, they were all women, which like on the one hand especially mother and I's immediate reaction because we did watch this movie as a family sitting around in the living room was like yes see the women are smart you go inside like you would during a storm drill like you go to the deepest bowels of the building yes the women get it they they have self-preservation instincts but then we're all saying why are they going outside yeah like why are you leaving the building um which you know I guess the schoolhouse doesn't have a middle but like seriously you keep the kids inside but in that scene where they're all huddled in the hall, we were like, yes, they're being smart. But also we immediately turn around and have them be petty and have, you know, the woman get slapped because she insisted Tippy Hedren brought the evil birds, yes. you know? And so it's sort of those combinations of for everything that's kind of neat and a human person thing to do that any woman does or any like amount of agency they have, it is equaled by the assumption that they are just women and still you know need protecting or right you know right. those those themes are at least as strong in the movie like it's not yeah. it's not the most reductive presentations of women in the world like uh the way i would put it is essentially if any of these people were real people that actually had these lives and did these things yeah, that's there are people like that in the world. That's fine. That's lovely. They, some of them would even be cool. I would think they were neat. But also knowing that, you know, generally speaking, a man sat down and made the creative decisions for all of these things to happen this way, you know, for Ms. Daniel's world to exist in such a way that she lacks a mother figure and can do whatever she wants, you know, it's like, yeah, this this well, is maybe. still not real and so yeah. you know i have a little bit of a eh, you know feeling about it well i mean maybe there are as many women with as much agency as they have because we're starting with a baseline by daphne du maurier yeah maybe and then 
you know, was taken over by the screenwriters. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I think some of that, uh, along with the phone booth, are a tell that this is 1963. Yes. And uh, we, we have to adjust our expectations accordingly mm -hmm. uh, around some of that. Sort of. I mean, I also stand firmly by, um, it's really convenient now that Shane Bidet of BuzzFeed Unsolved fame has said, so it can be gift and image setted into oblivion for our convenience, that uh, it's very easy to condemn the past from our modern perspective. And so we do condemn wholeheartedly. And like, that's, that's a mood sometimes. <laughs> like, yes, contextualization is key, but also, you know, doesn't mean we have to be stoked about it kind of thing. And like, this oh, yeah. is particularly bad in that regard, but just your comment of, you know, framing it as the sixties, it's like, yeah, but that also reminds me, we do condemn wholeheartedly. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock does not get four stars in his treatment of women. Yeah. Not the least of which was some of those birds that are attacking Tippi Hendren in the penultimate scene are rubber banded or uh, bungeed to her physically and uh she suffered exhaustion more than once in the film and uh after her second film uh marnie uh, a couple years later she refused to ever work with him again fair feeling that he was a uh, psychological torturer so so there is that uh-huh that that this guy i'm afraid tries to forget as much as i can when when watching the storytelling side. I, I know that about you. <laughs> yeah, can't, can't give up the passions of my youth to, totally. <laughs> but, but hopefully nobody's out there making movies with that mm. same component these days. I don't know. I, I think there's an unfortunate amount, unfortunately, recently, but I, I do think it is comparatively few and far between, hopefully. So I guess we should rate the story. Oh. Out of well, however I, many crows you like. <laughs> well, I love this story and I've loved it for 50 years. So I don't know how to, how to break that down. It's, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, I love so many movies. So can I say it's a top 10? It's probably oh, a top absolutely. 20. <laughs> and on any given day, I'd probably, it could, might be top five, depending on how <laughs> I'm feeling. So in terms of story, I'd probably give it, 10 killer crows out of 10 killer crows for, for what it is and what it's trying cool. to do. Yeah. I, I would probably go for nine out of 10 crows just cause like, you know, I, I was aware you, you asked me what I thought of the movie when we ended right, the movie. I, um, and I was like, I can't really talk to you in detail cause we need to have this conversation. We have had, we have cut off all conversation about this movie in our house for the last day or so since we watched it. But Essentially, I can see the artistry of it and I think it's neat, even if it doesn't personally grab me, if that makes sense, of like, I am not emotionally attached to it comparatively, but I do think it is objectively quite good, which is an ironic point to make, well, in subjective cinema, but you know. But yeah, I, I would give the story nine out of 10 in part because like all of the elements and all of the characters seemed in many ways to me to be very like, traditional for lack of a better word like you know every character you saw was a particular thing and even if that wasn't the only thing they were they were clearly and definitely that thing at all times you know Ms. Daniels is rich 
Yeah, you know, um, yes. Annie is the nice school teacher. Mom is kind of a bitch. The kid is a kid. Mitch is a dashing man, you know, and certainly all of the side characters, you know, all of them are very distinct. A shopkeeper. Yes, he's a very distinct kind of small town shopkeeper, you know. There's an iconic quality to each one of the characters. Yeah. And, you know, the the elements and the pacing of the movie strike me as quite traditional. But at the same time, in the way that, like, we watched that Twilight Zone recently where we were like, mm, you know what's going to happen? That tea set is getting dropped. You know, like at no point did I have that much insight into the movie. There there was still that sense of like, you know, birds will keep attacking until we don't do that anymore. Some party is going to leave or be killed and then we will be done. Like, you know, I know that's the arc of this movie. I know we will have some resolution with mom. You know, like there are things I know, but the methods by which they happen stayed a mystery to me. So I think that's pretty neat. Yeah. And I mean, this is, Alfred Hitchcock is where I learned and I've probably forgotten half of it, but the language of film. Mm -hmm. So I love both being manipulated by that and having learned as, as much as I've been able to retain being in the moment and, and understanding what's manipulating me. And yet still suspending my disbelief and succumbing to the emotion of it. I mean, I literally was brought to tears when Lydia came racing down the hall from the murdered mm. uh, farmer, mm-hmm. you know, as she's, you know, that, that rush of emotion that takes over her body. And I mean, I just think Jessica Tandy nails that moment of transcendent horror She's, she's gasping and gurgling, you know, she's unable to speak, which I think is another thing, you know, how they use silence and how they mm-hmm. use sound. We're going to get to sound. Oh yeah. Sound but, uh, is going to be fun to talk about. It's a big deal in this movie. It is. But uh, I don't know where, how I got on that tangent, but so there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So mise-en-scene? Mise-en-scene. Uh, since it is a fucking yeah, you you fancy film miner, tell me what the hell mise en scène means. I, I was about to say, since it is a funky term, um, <laughs> I, I will take a second to define it. It is essentially all of the visuals that are, you know, on set. All of the practical visuals are mise en scène. It's frequently defined as anything that would be in a stage play, though I don't think that, you know, that doesn't necessarily tell you everything you need to know, but close enough. In a pinch, mise-en-scene would include acting, but it doesn't here because that is sort of its own thing in terms of how you think about it. But yeah, it's any of the visuals that are not, you know, cinematography, editing. That's pretty much mise-en-scene. Usually sort of setting and costumes are the big ones, generally speaking. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, you want to know what I think? What do you think? I think that in terms of what Mr. Hitchcock was trying to do or what I, what I think he was trying to do with story and with that, that ultimate impact of how long can man abuse nature before nature abuses man. Mm-hmm. My own personal experience, and I haven't traveled the entire world, 
but I've traveled a lot of the U.S. and San Francisco holds a very particular place in my heart as being a metropolitan area that is nestled in and near some of the most fabulous natural environments that the country has to offer. I mean, you're right across the bay from uh, Muir Woods, Sausalito, the Bay Area all by itself. You're a, you know, you're a short drive to Yosemite. I mean, there are uh, the, and then the up the coast to Bodega Bay just gets more spectacular in its own way. And mm -hmm. so that cop, but it, but it has that cosmopolitan man is in control, major metropolitan area. It's not, it's not Bodega Bay all by itself. That, yeah. that anchoring and starting the story in San Francisco where man is totally in control of his environment has, you know, has mastered water, land, you know, nature in, in all its elements. And then, you know, we're just nearby in Bodega Bay, what, you know, an, an hour up the coast. Something like that. An hour and a half on, on the interstate, two hours. Something like if, that. If yeah. you take the coast yeah, I think road. That's it. But I, I think in terms of setting, it's a perfect choice if, for for what I for the impact the film had on me. Yeah. Uh, because, because it does have those components of of the natural world and the the man-made environment in in urgent and immediate proximity to each other. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I think we made some comments while viewing a, a matte painting and uh, some of that stuff. The, the fact of the matter is Alfred really never liked shooting on site hmm. uh, very much. Uh, and Can't control even, things? Well, yeah, you can be more in control. He, and a lot of, uh, there was some quote from him about uh, that the, the joy of creating the movie for him is in storyboarding and, and uh, I mean, he, he was famous for not leaving hardly any film on the editing floor. Hmm. He knew exactly what he wanted in every shot. There was not, there was wow. no improvisation <laughs> on an on an Alfred Hitchcock set. So he would even say that the shooting of the film could be boring to him <laughs> because he'd already visualized exactly what he wanted things yeah. to be. So so he far preferred to shoot in studio, and I think that's some of the things that, to our eyes today strike you as a little jarring that would not have been so much in 63. I don't know about uh, jarring, but like notable and charming. Like I never am looking at a matte painting going, hey, it's a matte painting, but I am like, no, look, it's a matte painting. Like yeah. I'm always still kind of happy to see them just cause like, I think practical effects and some of the artistry that used to, and if you're lucky still does, go into the physicality of filmmaking like is very cool but also it is kind of funny to start the shot with the actual ocean behind you and then as they walk away you're like oh that's uh that's a matte painting that's yep mm -hmm. <laughs> right. that next right. shot is uh absolutely on a set like <laughs> well and i can't remember because i i i knew this once upon a time but he did not like green screening and whatever they would do where they would put a car, an actual car in front of a, a movie of, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of the, you know, the traffic zooming past or whatever. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, 
a lot of those car shots. There's some other technique that he took advantage of, but it's still not an actual car racing down the road. So I'm not sure what he did, but he had a, he took steps to make it more naturalistic than, uh, than other folks of the time. Fair. Yeah. But Fair. definitely, definitely uh, Tippy in the Aston Martin was, was not always making those turns into the corners that with the tires squealing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it could arguably be mentioned in editing, but it's, it's too fitting to point out right now. Also the boat, the close-ups of her in the boat when she's obviously in front of a screen or whatever technique they're using. Yeah. My favorite thing is when actual exterior shot of him looking out at the, you know, bay and we see her actually in the boat from a distance. And then he picks up his binoculars and can see so far that he's in the set at Universal. Like, it right. just was so funny to me. Like, it shouldn't be. It looks as good as it's going to, but it is still really funny to me that through his binoculars, she is clearly in a boat in front of a screen. And yes. Yes. <laughs> that was just really entertaining to me of like, of course, it makes perfect sense logistically, Being. but it was still like... There she is on the soundstage. <laughs> Being coquettish. Yeah, yeah. Okay, coquettish. <laughs> but I think all in all, the mise-en-scene, did I have anything I had? Uh... Oh, well, the birds themselves. Yes. They had real challenges without the, the invention of CGI in figuring out how to get birds on the screen. And yeah. they did have actual bird footage that yeah. they superimposed onto other scenes. But uh, then there's also the real live birds or, you know, physical birds, birds and there are the occasional real live one. And there are they're bird puppets. Mm -hmm. uh, it, I mean. Oh, the bird puppets were funny to me. Not that they look very puppety. You just hang on them attacking somebody's hand for long enough and you're like, mm, that's a puppet. Like, not that's that it looks yeah. doofy. There are birds that look like Muppets just naturally. But yeah, just to hang on them long enough to be like, mm, that, that sure is a uh, fake seagull head on the top of a dowel that somebody's poking him with <laughs> like, or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's a hand puppet. I'm not sure, but. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, all the gulls just wandering around in the front yard is also great to me. Like, I kind of loved those close-up shots of the gulls that clearly, like, maybe they're sedated. They can't be bothered. They're just, you know, <laughs> shuffling away from the tires like, eh, all Well, right. all I can say is I know it was 1963. I know they had buttloads of challenges in, in every frame where birds are supposed to be taking agency of something. Mm -hmm. And I think all things considered, they did a damn good job. Yes. And even if we can see through it now, it's e like Even if it can sometimes knock me out of my suspension of disbelief at, at all these years later, <laughs> uh, I have a lot of respect for, uh, for the effort uh, yeah. that went into that. Well, you know, long before anybody was thinking, what if we brought dinosaurs back to life? You know, I mean, the only other people trying to do fantastical things at that point were probably Ray Harryhausen, and he couldn't yeah. have uh, he couldn't have done anything with these birds. So, no. call it a naturalistic effect <laughs> that was created without necessarily being a uh, 
always realistic effect. Yeah, yeah. We can we can talk more about the superimposed birds in the editing section if you want, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The birds get sort of split in this one because some of them are editing and some of them are just there, <laughs> you know, yeah. just hanging out. Back to mise-en-scene, I thought the creation of Bodega Bay. Yeah. Bodega Bay is a real place. I think that was Bodega Bay. Could easily I'd, be. I mean, the, the diner was a set, mm-hmm. but... But you know what a great diner, you know I I was there. There was there was nothing in 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 place and setting that was jarring or anachronistic or or out of place. San Francisco was San Francisco. Bodega Bay was Bodega Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the dock hands who were helping her with her boat. The the farmer. The farm. The farmhouse. Yeah. You know, nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. It just. Up one side. I mean, I, I'm I'm back to ten out of ten, my dear. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Um, mise en scène is arguably where we can bring up the physical similarities between Lydia and Ms. Daniels. Um, ah. Because you know that's that's costuming, that's styling to make them oh. look that similar. So I don't well, know I... that we have anything to say about that, but that is in my notes for mise-en-scene is is it 60s aesthetic or do they look really similar like is this just how women looked or do they look really similar so i i'm glad to know that's not just a time and style thing well edith head was the costume designer and she was as as iconic as hitchcock as director she was you know this is the absolute peak of his hollywood power he could get anybody to do anything and, uh, and he chose to give Tippi Hendren an ingenue who'd only been doing commercials and, mm-hmm. and billboard work, you know, an opportunity to, to anchor, you know, this huge Hollywood blockbuster before that had even been termed. Mm-hmm. I get, well, I, blockbuster probably, summer blockbuster, I think gets anchored around Jaws. Yeah, that's Jaws. So, Which, you know, minor Jaws vibes here. <laughs> which you know is obviously the other way around but right. still how, you know, how, tell me more it's not as severe because it's not the point in this case but people ignoring that there is a natural threat and yes. you know that that same suspense method of putting off you know showing the full horror of the situation um, you know which is yeah. intentional here and I believe at least according to legend was not intentional for Jaws they just couldn't get the damn monster rig to work <laughs> um, I don't know that that's true, but I think that is at least the urban legend around Jaws is that it is as suspenseful as it is partly by coincidence. I but, know they had trouble with the beast. Yeah. So, you know, still probably the best choice and arguably a creative choice to be like, mm, it doesn't look good enough. We should just make it suspenseful in this other way. But still, yeah, I, I hear oh, that I it's supposed to be in more things. And sort of the sound cues, I guess. We can talk about that more in sound, but there's a lot of situations where the birds are noted by their sound effects as opposed to any physicality. Like the first thing you hear is the noises of birds. Before you see them. Yeah, but two more mise-en-scene thoughts I have. Uh, A really minor one that just entertained me in the way of like, oh oh my God, this this is how women are styled, I guess. All of the women had really red lips all of the time. 
except at the end of the movie when we have attacked Tippi Hedren, she now has a nude lipstick on to show that she is pale, except it is still clearly makeup and not her natural lips. And so, you know, it's it's that wow. feeling of women in ads shaving bare legs and, you know, women... Uh, showing makeup wipes wiping off their distinct lipstick for nude lipstick underneath like you know i just had that moment of good choice but also funny to me that it is still like so much makeup right i would never I catch that i would never catch that that's yeah yeah that it, it was a coincidence that i noticed it earlier of like wow all, all these women have really red lips which like is fair that's the style but then also yeah when they when they laid tippy hedron down after she's been attacked i was like oh my god they replaced it with her skin color like we have just put foundation on this woman's on this woman's lips oh my god i think they also did it with uh kathy with the kid she also oh yeah got more pale but actually uh a more, I don't know, academic thought is uh, there's an interesting amount of like mise-en-scene setup and payoff. The main one that I noticed, I think I may have noticed others, but we don't need to linger linger on this exact point, is that when uh, Lydia mom is cleaning up from the birds coming through the chimney and fucking shit up, she lingers with the broken teacup she spends a lot of time with that broken teacup we see that several times and then that's her tell in the farmhouse that the birds have been there like that is both her warning and ours visually is all the teacups are broken and it's like hey (laughs) look at that (laughs) some some signaling through mise-en-scene and i think there are others but that's the one that slapped me across the across the face i love that yeah i I love that it's a really nice touch you know, the foreboding in the kitchen when she sees those cups and, and, mm-hmm. he, and he lingers on that frame for a little while so that in case we didn't get it, we can yeah. get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> cool. All right. You want to you wanna rank it, I guess? He's on send. I, I, mm-hmm. I already did. I said. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 crows. Um, and the, yeah. oh, I, I do have to say that the phone booth was uh, the a, phone booth. The phone booth introduced us, I think, to the feeling of claustrophobia hmm. and entrapment uh, that then would play on deeper levels as the entire family became entrapped in the house. And then uh, Ms. Daniels wound up being trapped in the upstairs room. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I think claustrophobia was another key terror element that yeah. he introduced and then would bring back again and again in various ways to uh, make us pee our pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep us on edge. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, I have eight out of 10 crows down for this one, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's good. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, that's the whole damn movie. It's a very competently made movie. Yeah. The worst thing you can say about any of it is that it's traditional, you know, or like timely if you're talking about the morals of the movie or, you know, the presentation of certain genders, certainly. And I mean, there's not a person of color in the damn film. So, you know, Um, but but the total lack is more indicative of the system than anything the movie's trying to say, I assume, in 63. So, yeah, this is uh, this is before San Francisco became San Francisco. 
<laughs> well, they actually, I mean, San Francisco has always been a rebellious town, but they don't, they don't play to that at all. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, we're also only there for like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. The people of San Francisco, even in 63, would be so not scandalized by someone taking a dip in a Roman fountain. That's fair. Yeah. That, that, that is a little, little off point for, at least for San Francisco. It's, it's always been a libertarian kind of environment. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, mom is the one scandalized. Yeah, well, Mitch plays it up a little bit. But, he does. But I think he's yeah. more titillated than scandalized. Yeah. yeah. But speaking of people and things they did in the movie, let's talk about acting. Acting, acting. acting. Something you know quite a lot about comparatively. Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, My sense watching these people act was that there was nice chemistry between Mitch and Miss Daniels. I thought they were very natural together. I thought everyone performed their roles well, though, you know, a little bit of Kathy goes a long, long way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's Kathy's a mixed bag for me because on the one hand, like, I sort of wonder if it's just a we don't know what to do with kids on a set kind of time. Cause like I find her crying kind of impressive. Like that's that's impressive levels of distress for a child acting, you know? Yeah. Like well, I guess my one thought at this point, sitting with it longer, is I hope we did not actually distress that child. That would be bad, about, but not unheard you're of. About, you're talking about her after uh, discovering Annie. Yeah, yeah, her in the car and, you know, just yeah. all of that. For the rest of the movie, she is traumatized. I and, thought you know, trauma was- that with a certain level of nuance for a kid, you know. I thought trauma was her best yeah. trait, her, her best delivery. Uh, the, uh, the, oh, please, Miss Daniels, please, Miss Daniels stuff. <laughs> yeah. And the, all the, I'm enthralled and in love with this woman who just walked in the room five minutes ago. That, yeah. that was a harder sell mm-hmm. for me than the, you're, you're right, that she was far more naturalistic. But, but I think, uh, may, I guess Stanislavski was already being taught, but uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're ahead of method acting by several years. So we're, yeah. I, I think it's unreasonable for us to expect, you know, James Dean levels of performance <laughs> out of each of these folks. I thought all in all, they were naturalistic and and appropriate to the characters. I'm kind of like with mom. I think uh, I think Annie is just a seductive woman, just and she, when she's not even trying to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, Annie's Suzanne, great. Oh yeah, Suzanne I mean, Plachette just, is just just you know to be hardcore Woolawoo for a second. She walked on screen, and I was like, oh shit, she's pretty. <laughs> she, she, she's real pretty um which also you know side note that we don't really have to get into but i mean she and tippy hedron had chemistry <laughs> like, yeah the two I, I would rewrite this movie with lesbianism like they, they had chemistry i like it i like it i think my just only- leave mitch out of it all together oh he could be there for drama i mean if it's still 63 that's not unreasonable but you know <laughs> Maybe they really were classmates in college, <laughs> roommates in college. Just, you know, them chilling, drinking together, talking about like, yeah, Mitch is uh, complicated. Like, maybe don't fuck with that. Like, good luck, I guess. But also. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, well, the notion of uh, a woman being more friendly with you when you're no longer a threat. Like, you know, there's there's a little bit of probably unintentional pulling back just a smidge of the curtain on, you know, heteronormativity and toxic masculinity and, you know, weird shit of like how the straight cis world is fucked up in many ways around gender and, you know, all of that. It's it's not severe or anything, but the way they do talk about, you know, the situation of that family in that particular long exposition scene. Right. There, there is evidence in there of the sort of notion of, yeah, you know, this shit's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not Families. a notion of trying to change it or leave it, but, you know, some good examples of... Families not working. Yeah, you know, of this mom thinks, you know, she needs to keep her son away from women because, like, that's the tether she has to the world. You know, like, the more sympathetic reading of mom, because you can go pretty sympathetic or unsympathetic simultaneously on that woman. The more sympathetic reading, if you look at it with the framing of, boy, patriarchy sucks, don't it? Like, not that she's aware of patriarchy, but that probably has something yeah. to do with why she feels the way she does, you know? But yet she takes a lot of agency herself. She goes and hops in the truck and drives off to that farm to see what's the matter with the, the chicken feed and all that yeah. stuff. You know, she's not, she's not a shy retiring flower. I mean, but. it's that thing about if she were a real person, she'd be perfectly lovely, but she's written by a man, so she isn't, which is to say, like, yeah, all of that is lovely, but she also has an entire scene where she sits in a bed talking about how useless and pathetic a woman-woman she is. You know, she's she cannot do all of the things because she is but a lady, you know, <laughs> like, which, you know, is wow. not the worst. It is genuine feelings that real people have. Again, if she was a real person, that'd be fine, yeah. but... Yeah. Well, but, but yeah, I think Hitchcock is at that point from both camera angle and camera position because he shoots her above and and if you looked at the you know the bedstead is mm -hmm. doing this number yeah that's true you know it's it's broken her that's talking and i think he's mm -hmm. signaling you know she's moving through something in that mm -hmm. dialogue she's not she's not miring down in something i think because as as the conversation goes on I've, i was so aware of that and with each time that the camera comes back it's a little leveler that's true leveler and it's a little more eye level and then mm -hmm. by the time she says you know thank you for the tea or whatever you mm -hmm. know she's she's back yeah so i, I think he was saying something about her there probably but, and, yeah but i don't know <laughs> I'm, I'm a guy. I, I miss a lot that you pick up on. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded. I don't know what exactly reminded me of this, but I feel it is perhaps important to talk, to mention the longer we talk about women in this Hitchcock movie. I mean, he's a large part of how um, the academic notion of the male gaze in film was coined. Oh. One of the central pieces of evidence in Laura Mulvey's something cinema male gaze I don't remember the long fancy academic title but the academic origins of the notion of the male gaze in film one of her central examples if not if she has three it might even be two of them but her main one is rear window but uh -huh. and, and she is also frequently talking about Hitchcock more generally even if that's her central example because of course it is, it makes everything super obvious because we are, you know, 
doing double the camera is the you know the observer but then also the camera is the observer of what the observer is observing within the context of the film so it really heightens it but you know it's it's that it's that's part of what frames the way I think about these women is that they are always still catered to the male gaze like they are always still women with a capital w and a trademark for you know capitalism or whatever like they are still all very comfortably within the norms you know like we're not breaking any barriers even if they aren't like one-dimensional they're still very suitable to the expectations of women all things considered so i think that's sort of the framing that's cool i'd be interested to read more about that yeah that's fair i don't remember how long it is but laura mulvey's it's it's not a bad read do you have that book uh, I, it's not a book. It's just an article. I could probably, I think I have a PDF copy of it somewhere, which, you know, is illegal, but that's fine. Um, I initially read it for, I won't tell for class. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool article. It gets, uh, a little more Freudian than I would be game for, but the, mm. the notion of the male gaze is super important. So, well, Hitchcock would be all over Freud. Exactly. Know. That's that's part would, of why I think would, Hitchcock is central to it is he's the easiest to read to the like borderline Freudian levels that she is reading these things because, you know, he's coming at it with that psychoanalytic angle. He is. I mean, he's interpreting his world through those writings, which are still relatively fresh and new at the time. But I don't know. I don't have a lot more to say about acting other than it was... Uh, competent and appropriate to the time mm-hmm. and and uh certainly with the exception of a couple of moments with Kathy didn't pull me out of the scene they drew me yeah. in I would say uh Tippy was out of her depth on the sofa flipping out mm. that, yeah that, that I, I felt like I was watching someone being told how to act a a psychological break that's fair. But, but but that I I I anticipated rating this one. I gave it a for nineteen sixty-three, I gave it an A plus. For twenty twenty-one, <laughs> I gave it a solid B. Yeah, that's fair. How do you rate the acting? Uh frankly, I'd say nine out of ten, because like I think most of the things we see as like, you know, twenty twenty-one, the solid B are, you know products of the writing or how acting was done at the time you know because everybody is playing you know people that feel like real people and tropes simultaneously they they are tropes with somehow depth like you know they don't feel one-dimensional even though it's also like ah yes a you know scholarly old lady sure she is exactly that you know especially yeah the bit parts i was like i'm very entertained by you guys like you are giving it your all like hell yeah yeah. oh yeah yeah the the bartender the yeah yeah the The fisherman the the, shopkeeper that little exchange between the two shopkeepers of like what's the girl's name and neither of them are right and that's you know that's hitchcock putting injecting humor Mm -hmm. where he didn't have to yeah but he does he he creates character in a moment Mm -hmm. part of his brilliance that's for sure and yeah with the realization that all of the monologuing is counterweighed by 
equally relevant and skillful physical acting, you know, especially when we might talk about it more in sound, I don't know, but there is just like bird cacophony. And so there is no dialogue, but still plenty is communicated in that scene. And, you know, that scene where he goes out to get the car, you know, and there is sound in terms of he turns on the radio, but he's not saying a damn thing and communicating plenty in that scene. So, you know, with those two considerations, it's like, yeah, nine out of 10 crows, y'all are, y'all are rocking it. Yeah, good, okay. So cinematography and framing, which I would think is, you know, any great filmmaker is considered pretty cool on the cinematography level usually. And we've talked about it some in terms of, you know, what yeah. angles mean of being off kilter is unsettled and, you know, from above is makes people smaller and weaker and, you know, that kind of thing and vice versa. Right. Yeah. I, I think you could study, we could do two hours just on this if we went back. Yeah. Shot we, by we, shot. Yeah. We'd want to be projecting it while talking about it to be able mm-hmm. to, to, to get into the, the realness of it. But it's a, it, I think it's a masterclass in, in cinematography it clubs you over the head sometimes (laughs) when after the sound has gone near the end and the camera gets set low shooting up and it's a wash of ceiling with shadows and just you know the isolation of a solitary mother's head over in the Mm -hmm. side of the screen anxiously listening Mm-hmm. And the you know, and then we expand the shot back out, and I think uh, Kathy maybe appears in a lower frame, and then, and then foregrounded is Mitch, and they're all just listening, and you know, and you're you're just dying to know what's on the other side of that ceiling, mm-hmm. and your ears are buzzing, and that's that's all just through the framing and the, the setup of that shot. And I, I guess this is cinematography that I'm talking about. Yeah, it about. is. Yeah, that's but, cinematography. But, you know, arriving in Bodega Bay, you know, mm-hmm. we see Bodega Bay from across the bay. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he goes to great pains, you know, when we are just first getting to know where Mitch lives. Well, let's go out on the front and let's take a look and, and point out to oh, Yeah. And then, you know, then let's get on the boat and let's see a little closer. Let's see a little mm-hmm. closer. And then, and then mother hunch, pardon me, just about went wrong. She's walking right inside that house, <laughs> you know, but, you know, he uses, he uses the camera and he uses it to set up and to create an intimacy and to create a, a natural setting where, where, oh, look, you know, this is just as I would approach the house. I would never walk into that house without... Yeah somebody opened opening the door for me these are strangers you know yeah oh we were all watching it being like i know it's not technically breaking but that is kind of breaking and entering gun no stop to cinematography again though the brilliance of the diner attack Mm. oh yeah there's a lot going on there there's a lot going on there half of that is editing well yes I would agree. But the agency they give those birds, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have the sen- the true sense of their, you don't have an intimate sense of their agency. You're not feeling what it's like to be a bird until it's all over, the fire's burning and we're, and the camera shot is up in the sky, dirigible height. 
and one of the birds comes sweeping in and then another and then another and it's like it's like they're just having a little coffee clutch up there talking about <laughs> their handiwork Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a few friends have gotten together to say, look what we did. <laughs> and uh, suddenly you're a bird with them, by the way, he approaches that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just thought not everybody would have thought of that one. Yeah, that's fair. They, they might have ended just on, you know, one of the explosions or it would have been all about the explosions. And mm-hmm. it was not all about the explosions. It was all about the birds by, by ending that sequence that way. Yeah. Yeah, it gives them a sort of malice that even if you like sort of had it before, there is more of that sense of like, they planned this. <laughs> like, not that you necessarily believe that, but it makes that notion more convincing. Oh, but you do. That maybe they did. <laughs> at that moment, at that moment, that's the first time I think that you feel like, oh, they're, they're talking to each other. I don't know, gathering on the, whatever it would be, the, you know, climbing structure on the playground, there is a little bit of like, who? Well, okay. I, that came before. Yeah. I'm, I'm mixed up in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, that came before because she goes from the schoolhouse attack to the diner. Yeah, that's definitely a Hey Buddies moment too. Yeah, yeah. of, you come know, on, yeah. Come we, on, guys. We're, we're going to meet at the rendezvous point, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's everybody showing up. Yeah. Now wait till Sam gets here and then we'll go. <laughs> Though another uh, cinematography thing that they really wait like till the to stupid do. people come running out of the school. Why would you leave the school? But um, they love somebody in the foreground and something else happening in the background, or like you know, uh, just this movie loves wow. to set up a shot with a person in the foreground and some you know usually action but also like not always you know there is a foregrounded relevant character and built information behind them you know like there's that shot of mom on the phone and like mitch and ms daniels are just you know wandering around and you know getting drinks and sitting down and talking to one another and then shifting around and being like she's still talking huh you know like they're wandering around back there um you know, I, we. I have... bet I know. I bet I know. I know another one you're thinking of. Yeah. Is uh, is Miss Daniels and Annie. Yes. And Miss Daniels takes the phone from Annie, and Annie mm-hmm. gets situated in her chair, and Annie's in the foreground. Yeah. Miss Daniels is back there talking to Mitch, and mm-hmm. we're watching, we're watching Suzanne Plachette do some Academy Award level face acting. Yeah. And we action. confirm that like. Ms. Daniels, Tippy Hedren can't see her because we, you know, cut back to the, you know, Tippy Hedren point of view shots or something much closer to that right, and right. can't see her face. But yeah. Yeah. Though another one that I liked that I think is a similar kind of thing, even if it's not an identical thing, in the diner conversation about the birds, like the long yes. ass one, yes. it eventually gets to the point that was where, upsetting the children. Yeah. Where you have, uh, the sort of the usual shot reverse shot of the conversation is what's going on of like you know over the shoulder for both parties more or less with the ornithologist and it gets to a point where when you're on shots of Ms. Daniels behind her is fairly empty and then if you when you cut back to behind the ornithologist there's just everybody everybody is just gathered behind her and just staring just like yeah yeah, what about that? 
ma'am like you know just like staring at her and the impact of that of like because you know part of it is angle like it's not as though these people have gathered behind her it's that the shot sort of builds them up in a mass behind her you know it's like they're just sitting at the bar and at a table at the end of the bar you know but there is still this collection of faces and eyes behind her of just like everyone's skepticism you know it just gives you that extra sense of sort of everyone teamed up against the outsider it's the end of the world. <laughs> oh, and he's the like one person behind her. So it's like the crazy person side of the bar and the locals side of the bar. Yeah, yeah. So, or, you know, counter. Uh, what was the one order that we heard called up? Oh, what was it? Because, yeah, it said like three times. Fried chicken. <laughs> oh, my God, I missed that. Yeah, that's lovely. That's what the kids were eating too. They were all eating. It was it was reminiscent of the shot from his preview. Yeah, I mean not not as detailed, but they and all still. had big they all had big plates of mashed potatoes and fried chicken. Oh my god, that's in, great! In front of them, that's the only food I think we hear mentioned, other than tea. tea yeah, that cake. that sounds about right. Some some booze. Here but I, I yeah, I don't think it was accidental that they were having no. fried chicken. No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> How would you rate the cinematography? Uh, like I said, it was a master class. That's that's ten killer birds. I'm fair. I love this movie. If you I know, I should stop asking people to rank them. People are always like highest rating. Why are you asking? Like, you know? well, I don't know. Sometimes I do get variations on the categories, but I mean, sure, yeah, well, anybody yeah. can predict where we're eventually going with anybody's rating for these movies, but. Yeah, I would I would probably say nine out of ten crows. Yeah. Okay, editing. Editing's another fun one. Well, it's interesting. As we've been talking, I'm aware that uh, a lot of Hitchcock is the editing language that I grew up with. Fair. You know, and uh, you know how how he uses editing to create suspense. How he mm-hmm. how he uses it to create scene and setting how he uses it to enhance character. You know, he's not really a, a horror jump cut. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, no jump scares with this guy. Well, I mean... Well, maybe yeah, not none, but... Yes, yes and no. I mean, he, you know, rhythm from, you know, from pastoral to frenetic. I mean, how many shot individual shots are there in the shower scene in Psycho. I, I don't remember, but too many. I, I think it's like 57. It's a lot. Uh, over, you know, over uh, 120 seconds of film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he knows how to edit for chaos because that's also what you get in like the bird attack of Tippy Hedrid, especially. And, you know, right. all of the bird attacks, but that one in particular, since you only sort of have, you know, it's a very limited space where these things are happening as opposed to like the entire parking lot or the run from the school, you know, it's it's the most enclosed space where all of this is happening and so much editing for chaos. Well, and, you know, I, I think the scene you studied Mm-hmm. The discovery of the farmer, yes. the broken teacups, yeah. the slow walk through the kitchen, you know, the silent, absolutely silent walk down the hall, mm-hmm. looking into rooms, what what's going on, the the slow pan into the bedroom and the the focusing on the dead seagull in the broken in the mm-hmm. in the shattered glass. 
the the tr the pan and then the, back to her face and back yeah. to the floor and back to her face and back to the floor and you know with each wide-eyed discovery and then the full frame of the upper torso and the head and then the zoom in on the face which yeah. all probably takes place in less than three seconds because that's uh, edits isn't it it's not a zoom it's a edit 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 it's and an edit, that's, edit, edit. Yes, that's a very particular impact too. That's not often used. Yeah, but man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, then we're back in the hall, you know, and she's mm -hmm. fighting her way out of the house. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, nothing's in her way, but she's struggling to get as far away from what she just experienced. Yeah. I'm getting emotional just talking about it. You know, it's just like, oh, the horror. It, mm -hmm. It's just, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And, and, and that's the editing language that I grew up with. Yeah. And I'm aware from talking with you of you know, how ingrained that is in me of, in terms of expectations and how, how that can be unsettled by a different vision of how editing can work. Because that, that's like, Alfred Hitchcock is like English. It's like my mother tongue. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, if you if you go too far afield, I have to work harder because it's like, oh no, this is this one's edited in Spanish. <laughs> I, I need I need some help to figure out what they're trying to communicate here. Yeah. So I, I don't know, you know, I'm I'm clearly biased because <laughs> this was this was the first editing I ever learned. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't something I was getting by osmosis watching Popeye the Sailor or something <laughs> like that, which mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, the early Popeyes were some brilliant cartoon editing of their <laughs> own. Talking about how, you know, this is the familiar editing style to you uh, brings me to a thought that I probably have about the editing and I know for sure I had about the cinematography of like, it strikes me as quote unquote basic, but done really well of like using the comparatively basic toolbox to to great effect you know which i have no idea how much that is just the world i know is heavily influenced by these films or it is just using the basic toolbox to great effect but you know it is that thing of like this is the era on which sort of hollywood is based at this point you know this is yeah. it is not actually the baseline but you know Hitchcock and Citizen Kane, you you see those, you will not be surprised by the, certainly at least editing or cinematography in most movies from Hollywood for a damn long while. I'm, I, sh I shouldn't be surprised by what you're saying because you're talking about something that's been established and Hitchcock is long dead. And, you know, we're talking about 57 years ago yeah. that this film came out. Mm -hmm. But the the thing that strikes me is that as a kid and seeing it for the first time in probably 66 or 67, this was brand new. Yeah, that's fair. This was like, this was using the tools of editing and, and camera and story and bringing them all together in ways that were fresh and innovative. And, you know, this, I mean, this was... Uh, Pedro Almodovar, you know, this is, you know, who's, who's an up-and-comer trying new things today? Oh, Lord, if I know, I don't pay that much attention. I should, but I don't. 
I mean, Jonathan Dem in the eighties and nineties was innovative. Who, who was, who directed uh, Silence of the Lambs? You know, oh, geez, a, I don't a know. lot of the things you see now are people taking other genres like documentary mm-hmm. and, and turning them into feature film. Yeah, that's fair. And, and taking tools from, from other environments and freshening up the language yeah. of the feature films. Yeah, and don't misunderstand me. I don't know that I think the tools are generally used this well, but also they do strike me as the quote-unquote basic tools, you know? Yeah, like, I, think that's, I think that's what he created for America. Fair. In a lot of ways. I believe it. Both through his choices and through his popularity. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, other directors. Well, and then you see it in Spielberg for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's the thing is that this is the basis for the modern basis of film, like filmmaking at this point in a more traditional sense, as opposed to, you know, trying to be out there and particularly artistic, you know, your baselines now are Lucas and Spielberg. Like that's right. You know, that's the introduction to cinema that, you know, people older than me, you know, the people currently making films for the most part, that's their baseline. And the baseline that's built off of is this. So yeah, it seems, though brilliantly executed, very normal to me also, yeah. Well, but that's also where you get somebody like a Wes Anderson auteur mm-hmm. yeah. who goes, no, I'm <laughs> going to create my own language, thank you very much. <laughs> and then you see people start copying him for mm-hmm. some, of the, some of the impact that they realize his style can bring to a story. yeah. There, there's a new innovative filmmaker. I knew we could come up with one. What are we missing on editing today? I mean, I want to do a shout out to Ub Iwerks, who's in the opening credits. Uh, oh, is he? Yeah. I assume it's The original for... creator of Mickey Mouse, right? Yeah, yeah. The guy that worked with him on the early Mickey shorts and on, you know, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit kind of stuff. I assume it's for the opening titles and the superimposed birds from the way it is phrased is what Mm. he and or his company handled but i'm not 100 percent sure but that sounds about right because one of the earlier disney things was that quote-unquote alice in wonderland series it looks nothing like the movie that came later but it's a it's live footage of a little girl on blue screen or you know whatever that was in black and white the equivalent but i think it was even still blue at the time with then a world animated around her. So I can imagine that they would know from that kind of effects and that he would be able to do that for them. So that was cool. I was like, hey, I know that name. (laughs) And since you mentioned them, let's just take a moment for the opening titles, how how much they clash with the end of the movie. Yeah, they they fit the beginning of the movie beautifully. But but man, the birds I mean, the typefaces that are chosen and a lot of the kind of animated effect to those leave you, certainly don't leave you anticipating a lot of horror. They, well, I don't know. I, I, remember, I remember one of those typefaces, I think, was like straight out of Please Don't Eat the Daisies. Whatever the title font was reminded me very, you know, of the birds. Like the rest of it was your basic, like I don't know that it was Times New Roman, but it was a very similar kind of thing. Um, you know, basic serif font. But the title case for The Birds, or font, reminded me of Mary Poppins. Yeah. And that yeah. threw me off. And yeah, it's like baby blue. Like, yes, yes. It was very sweet. It was very, uh, 
It was very rom-com-ish. But at the same time, since we're about to talk about sound, the sound is the thing that undercuts that. Yeah, and there's to me a, at least because it's it's the birds sound effects and those and are there's, there's funky. not a there's not a drop of music in this soundtrack. No, which I can't think of another movie I can say that about. I don't know one off the top of my head. I believe they exist, I mean, but I believe I they exist. Them. But as a major Hollywood release, I I would say this may be a singular effort. Yeah, I mean, probably in the same way that Psycho. Well, the soundtrack of only strings. This has a soundtrack. What did you call the music, the the singing of the children and the piano playing? Oh, oh, diegetic. Diegetic. Yeah, yeah. The that fun term, diegetic. So diegetic means in the world of the film. So. Uh. So, generally speaking though playing with this dynamic is great fun and happens all the time the score is non-diegetic the dialogue is diegetic you know the the dialogue is everybody's yes. actually hearing that unless it's a voiceover right. and you know the score generally everybody is not hearing that but you assume that and then sometimes your expectations can be played with that way which is fun you know you'll pan over and lo and behold someone is actually playing that music you know and Right, right. Turns off the radio and you move on. But but right. generally speaking, so but that's not in diegetic, the non-diegetic. So there's yeah. really not a soundtrack. Everything is diegetic in this because all the yeah. bird sounds are are in the moment. Yeah. The opening credits are the closest you get because, you know, there's not a sense of place there. Like, right. you know, you're in the weird world yeah. of the credits that is non-diegetic, but yeah. everything else, 100% diegetic. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how they came how they recorded all of that, how much of it is actual bird sounds and how much of it is altered bird sounds. I, it's and gotta be altered, which I'm, we're just, we're in sound now. We're just going to live here and then rate them both as a unit. Okay. But yeah, they, they're not straight up bird sounds. They remind yeah. me of like the sound of, I don't know, like flicking a really tight wire or something. There's like a, there's a reverb element to them that, yeah strikes me and then also just like when we're talking the bird cacophony like when they're coming at the house you know things like that that reminded me because i was just sitting there because you sit with it for a really long time and uh the way i eventually quantified it is it reminded me of sure at its heart it sounded kind of like gulls like gulls are clearly in there you know that's got to be in there but also it reminded me possibly because it was a cacophonous sound loop, but for some reason, at some point, it reminded me of a car alarm. Like not the whole thing, but elements mm. of it. I felt like I could hear a car alarm-like sound in it. Right. And then the rustling of the feathers and you know, not to mention the smacking into the house kind of stuff gives you a major like storm natural disaster vibe too. And like, it's a lot and has, and does its job very, very well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's uh, fingernails on a blackboard to a, to a degree. It's. Uh, I find it more like overstimulation in a crowd, but like, yeah, that's that's the vibe. Yeah, of, well, and things that go gonna bump in the night. And also soothing sounds. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's all that cooing and lowing when the, in the, you know, when he goes out to get the car with the yeah. occasional, you know. And, yeah. Oh, speaking of the car, I've been putting this off every time you mention the like small amounts of comedy in the mo- scattered throughout the movie. I know one where of the you're best going. ones I is he closes going. the door. Okay. And- 
you, you just blew my favorite moment of the whole film. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We can talk more about it when we get to the favorite moment. Cause it's, I think it's great. I think it's pure Hitchcock. Can we just go there? You can, oh, sure. you can, you can move it around. Uh, no, no. I mean, let's just go ahead and rank it and shift there. We've been doing this for plenty long. Oh, okay, good. The sound is so innovative. I mean, plays such a huge role in in the energy of the film, in the psychology of the film, in the, in what impact. I mean, the silence in the hall when. Oh uh, yeah. You know, oh 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 my lord, sound sound is just so. I, it, it's. It's 10 out of 10. I'm hoping we finally get a 10 out of 10 out from you. Yes, the sound is definitely 10 out of 10. And since we didn't get to the editing, I would say maybe eight out of 10 crows for the editing, but yeah, damn good stuff. Yeah, it's uh, it's nine out of 10 for me, but. Fair. I was too entertained to by the superimposed birds. Like I respect it immensely, but I was still every time a superimposed bird appeared, I was like, oh my God, hello. <laughs> you, it pulled you out of the film. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. Not that I don't respect it. You know, that's any of the things that I'm like, I uh, can't well, see behind the curtain on that one. Like, it's yeah. not so much that I'm like, and that means it's shitty. I'm just like, mm, I can see behind the curtain. And that that's takes, kind of fun to see sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's why Tippy in the room with the birds at the, the, the climactic terror scene, mm -hmm. because... 57 years of technical development have taken place yeah. since that scene was first seen. I, I think it is diminished by age. Yeah. In a way that the discovery of the farmer is not. Yeah. You, you, you don't have any, that's, that's a dead gull in the window. Mm -hmm. That is a dead gull in the window. That is not a prop. You're, you're not thinking, yeah. Oh, I wonder what the, how the prop guy did that. Mm -hmm. as, as much as you like uh, practical effects, which this film is loaded with, mm -hmm. uh, age does not help us in the penultimate scene. Yeah, not really. Like it's, it. yeah, I, I believe you since you saw it in a more contemporary setting. Yeah. The superimposed birds did way worse for me than anything in that. You know, can, if it's mostly practical effects, I was cool with it. But I, I also that. still totally believe you because, you know, it also drives home that notion of not seeing it and let your imagination create it is always going to be, you know, more powerful than effects that will inevitably be in some way dated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a reminder of that to juxtapose that scene with the farmer, you know. Yeah, because I mean, once again, that was, in terms of power, that was the single most powerful moment. And you know, if if I'm being honest, when I think about this film, I love that scene. It's just it it's the shower scene of that movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it it's the it's the masterclass. It's the forte mm -hmm. of the of the of the movie. But on a love level, <laughs> that moment. And, and part of it was enjoying your your giggle when it happened and Mitch is getting into the car. They've, he's gotten everyone in and he's the last one in. And we, we I think we've had one look out the garage door at the scene and, and we're back intimate in the car. He's closing the door. And, it's just a it's little- It's great. No comment, no, no friend, comment. no nothing from anybody. Well, clearly, clearly. Shuts clear. and 
<laughs> Clearly nobody in the scene is hearing that. It's, Probably. It's some, something added later. Yeah. But but that is that is Hitchcock. That is Hitchcock is having fun with us right there. But I think it also it's a part of his closing statement. It's a part of his closing argument. And you know, when I think about your love for the Adams family, I just think the yeah. more you get to know Hitchcock, <laughs> uh, the more you're gonna love him because of his dark humor sensibility. The more you pay attention, the more it's there, the more you discover, the more you find. <laughs> but uh, you know, we go from that then to that sea of nature taking control of what man thought he was in control of. Yeah. And and it's sort of like, I don't know. I, I think there's just a statement that Alfred Hitchcock can find that that is both, it's the human comedy. Mm -hmm. You know, nature is going to beat us. We, we you know, we, it, it yeah, just, there ain't it, no way around it. it. It's bigger than us, and mm -hmm. and and the and the devil in us is going to laugh at us for not. I mean, that's what he's doing in that preview. Yeah, too. he's laughing at the audacity that we should think birds are here for our, you know, gratification. Yeah, I just saw Alfred in that moment. It was just like. This is so your movie, man. Yeah, that's fair. This is so you, and I, and I, I do have to say, it's probably, probably wouldn't have been my favorite if I hadn't gotten to see you enjoy it as much as you did when you giggled at that. Oh, it's hilarious! <laughs> it's hilarious! It's absolutely wonderful. It also, you know, it serves a convenient purpose to de-escalate the end of this horror movie, like something yes. as we're talking about the end of it, like most of the elements of those last couple minutes, you know, essentially just being out in the car and driving away, just those couple yeah. minutes are calibrated to simultaneously make the point of the movie of nature gonna get us. Like we're, we're being dicks to nature. It can outdo us while at the same time offering all of the elements needed to appease and deescalate the audience. You know, because there's like that angelic, like, you know, angel staircases coming out of yes. the matte painting or, you know, maybe it's real, but I don't think it is. Oh, uh, I don't think it is. Can't be. You know, the angel staircases on the matte painting. It's like, yes, they're, you know, going towards good things visually. But also, you know, all these birds are here. They're not leaving. We did not get rid of the birds. We're just right. leaving where they have overtaken, you know. Right. Well, and in terms of a literal sense in the movie why, I mean, this is all our projections. The movie itself never answers that question. You yeah. know, the why, you know, was it the, no, was it capturing the lovebirds? Was it, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, in a way it's uh, Jurassic Park answers why every time you turn around. Yeah. You know, and, but we're, because of our experience with other films like that and our own foreboding around climate change and that sort of thing. All of this may be a projection on our part. If Alfred were here to talk with about this, he may yeah. say, no, I never wanted to answer the question of why. I just wanted, I just thought birds were some badass shit that could mess with us. Yeah, and, It would be a scary thing to think about for a while. Yeah, there's a common sentiment that goes around of like, 
I, I have generally seen it talking about the Twilight Zone and what makes the Twilight Zone quote unquote better than Black Mirror is that Black Mirror is going to give you a reason and a moral with everything. But sometimes the Twilight Zone just gives you a weird story and is essentially saying, wouldn't that be fucked up or what? And like, <laughs> I was like, I was just thinking as this movie drew to a close, I was like, is this, this, this could very easily just be a, wouldn't that be fucked up movie? Like, you know, yeah. there's more to it than that, but in terms of like the reasons why and anything made remotely explicit, it's a, wouldn't that be fucked up kind of plot line. Yeah. I've, I've exposed myself to my favorite scene. <laughs> uh, Let's throw that ball back to you. I mean, I haven't really been thinking of it in terms of favorite scene. Um, so I, I really don't know. Most impactful. What, when, you, when you go back to it in your mind, what's the first place you go? I don't really know. I, I would say, I think, you know, to just continue to be a big old Woolawood, the uh, most invested I ever was in the movie outside of on a like, this is a good example of filmmaking level, or, you know, just a casual experience of a film. It is not to say I dislike this film, but there is a certain attachment to it that I did not develop. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's a cool movie that, you know, sure. the je ne sais quoi that I have starts with, it sure is a movie, it is the beginning of my notes. It is what it is. Um, I think the most emotionally invested, frankly, that I was, was the conversation over a drink between Ms. Daniels and Annie. Yeah. I think that was just the point where I was like, yeah, you're the two characters I care about most in this movie, having a genuine conversation for lack of a better term. Like it's still doing a lot of work and clearly written by a man and like naturalistic is not the word for it, but like, yeah, I care about you too. Like, how you doing? What you up to? Wow. So yeah, I, I don't so know. So Annie's, Annie's death probably played harder on you. Kind of, like not quite. Cause you know, I feel like part of the impact certainly of the farmer is, you know, the shock and the jolt and the, you know, oh shit of like the threat. But like, yeah. I was certainly like, oh, Annie, no. Like I knew we were kind of oh. somebody, but oh man, like damn it. No, <laughs> so. Annie. Yeah. So yeah, it, it was a shame to me that she was the sacrificial lamb, even though it structurally does make sense in terms of, you know, she's the other part of the love triangle. You, you know, she's a reasonable one to get rid of. So there's no questions when you send your lovely couple off together, which I, I know is not necessarily the focal point of the movie, but I could imagine that would factor into your decision of who the audience cares about that you also are going to kill, you know. Right. And to bring it, to make it more of a personal threat to the leads. Mm -hmm. that it, yeah. It's getting, it's getting closer. You know, the farmer, mm -hmm. you know, she drove miles to get to him and yeah. raced miles back to, you know, he, he's way out there somewhere. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's COVID when it was still in China. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's, this is the first case in the United States. <laughs> Yeah, especially heart. for us living in Georgia when I think it was maybe in Florida. I know it got to Florida at some point and it was like, oh, it's a matter of time. Yeah. Well, I don't know where we are in all of this. Uh, is uh, there another evaluation? It's been a lot of fun. We should probably yeah. just rank the movie overall. Well, like I like I have any uncertainty of what your ranking would be. But nonetheless, just, you know, to wrap it up with a nice you, little bow. You asked me to pick one of my favorite films to talk about. So <laughs> Correct. That is I, the point. I, and 
and I've had an emotional engagement with it all these years that has been reinforced by my re recent watching it again. <laughs> so I'm going to have to give this one a 10 out of 10. Fair. In, just in terms of my love for it. <laughs> yeah. What it, uh, what it means to me. I, it's become a part of me. Fair enough. Yeah. But I, I well understand that a 57-year-old movie could not possibly have the same connection to to you so don't feel i don't know about that but way. this particular one yeah like i i think i would comfortably give it i have eight out of ten written down i think nine out of ten would be reasonable enough like the way i have been putting it throughout this is i respect the hell out of the movie even if it doesn't grab me personally you know yeah like i can yeah. still look at it and be like yeah that's that's a damn competent movie like yeah that's right. really well made all of the pieces work the way they were probably intended to, you know, so, yeah. Someday, if it's not totally against brand, <laughs> we'll have to flip these screens and have you pick your favorite movie and I'll watch it with you and then ask you all these questions. Fair enough. I, yeah, I will eventually finagle away to do a, to do a self-serving episode where I get to talk about whatever my favorite movie is, but we are saving that for assuming this season goes well. If if we do more of these, that'll be on the table. Well, do you have a catchphrase that you use to wrap these up? Or do we go take the film and put it in a golden chariot and have it launched in a balloon up into the clouds? Or Not a, quite. Um, best, best of the best process we do to close this out? No, I, th I think the ranking is the closest we get to the golden chariot. Uh, the, the cumulative uh, 19 crows can pick it up and carry it away. But no, uh, mostly... Well, hear, I hear that, hear that Patreon people. We, we need more <laughs> of you on board so that we can up the budget and get, get that, that golden, golden chariot. chariot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, no, mostly I just thank you for joining me and ask you if you have anything you want to plug southerncrescentchorale.org <laughs> go there anytime and uh, certainly if you need a little Christmas right this very minute go to southerncrescentchorale.org and sniff around until you find our YouTube channel and uh, go to the Southern Crescent Chorale Merry Christmas uh, <laughs> concert which uh, was a lot of fun I think yeah, you enjoyed it yeah too. You are the first person to specifically have something to plug because <laughs> asking uh, people kind of fresh out of college, that question is not very useful. Well, there's no money in it for me, but I, it's just the world will be a better place with more good music in it. So <laughs> go enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's your deal. That is totally valid. So yes, thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Anna. This was a blast. And thank you for listening. Um, we'd really appreciate if you would give us some positive feedback wherever you are tuning in. Uh, you know, like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube or the equivalent wherever you're at. Any kind of following would be appreciated. Uh, Subjective Cinema is a video eclectic production, and you can also check us out at Video Eclectic on YouTube, Facebook, and Tumblr, at video.eclectic on Instagram, and video underscore eclectic on Twitter. Follow us on any of those platforms to keep up with all things subjective cinema. Uh, you can also support Video Eclectic and Ergo the Podcast on Patreon and Ko-fi. Thanks again for tuning in and thank you, Mr. John Dodds, for being here and have a great day. Thank you.